Well, good morning, church. It is a pleasure to gather together once again, celebrate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, for those that may not know me, my name is Brandon Reed, and I'm the associate pastor here at Christ Covenant Fellowship. If you're new this week, thank you for joining us. We would love to connect with you before you get out of here. Uh, make sure you find myself or one of our members and introduce yourself. We'd love to get to know you and spend a little bit of time with you. As I alluded to earlier, our lead pastor, Pastor Tyler, is not here with us today as he is feeling a little bit under the weather. So again, he reached out to me last night and asked if I would uh, step in and fill the pulpit this morning. And I was more than happy to oblige. I am always thankful for the opportunity to preach God's word. So with that being said, however, that means we will be taking a temporary break from our study in the book of Philippians. Uh, we will pick back up next week. I know Pastor Tyler has already prepared a message for uh, that study, so we will continue in the book of Philippians, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday. But there is a word from the Lord this morning, and it is written right here in the pages of Scripture. Amen? Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, turn with me to Psalm 100. Psalm chapter 100. That will be our text for this morning. We will look at the entire chapter 100, all five verses there. So the book of Psalms is a wonderful read. I want to encourage you to add that to your regular reading as you have your time of devotion throughout your weeks and your days. Make sure you're reading through the Psalms consistently. There's a lot of beautiful truths there. The book of Psalms has always been considered a, considered a bit of a devotional guide or a hymnal for the people of God. Within these 150 chapters, uh, these verses, these words here are meant to be songs of praise to our great and glorious God. You see, the Psalms are unique as they take us on a journey of human emotion as we navigate through life on this side of eternity. You see, within this collection of texts, we find despair, we find lament, we find disappointment and dissatisfaction, but we also find psalms of joy and confidence and praise. And amid this mix of emotions, uh, this human experience, we are reminded to keep our eyes firmly fixed on our Lord and Savior, for he is the one true constant in a world full of sin and chaos and inconsistency. As we read through the Psalms and we move through this German of, uh, journey of human emotion, these valleys and peaks, these tragedies, these triumphs, we are also confronted with the sinfulness and the desperation of mankind. You see, that's the great human condition, our sin and our depravity, as uh, Jason Glenn alluded to. And before I go any further, I want to thank my brother and my friend, uh, Mr. Glenn, for stepping in this morning on short notice and leading that time of confession. That's what we do as members of the body. Amen? Amen. So we're reminded of this human condition. But again, these texts are meant to direct us away from ourselves and instead point us to the one true living God who restores our souls. You see, in this way, the Psalms help to reposition our hearts in a posture of praise 
And as humanity, as God's people bearing his image made in his likeness, praise is our purpose. Right? God has created us to worship him fully in every way, in all that we do. You see, it pleased the Lord in his divine and sovereign will to create man for himself. Right? It's funny, I was out to dinner last night and I uh, went to the restroom and they had this song playing on the radio. I'm not much into country music, but uh, the song that was on the radio, the dude who's singing is, he's saying, I was made for you. And I'm thinking to myself, nah, brother, you weren't. You were made for God. You were made for his glory. You were made for his glory. God has created us for himself. This God who is totally sufficient, who rules and reigns alone, completely pleased within himself. This holy and righteous God has given us life solely for the purpose of glorifying and enjoying him. That is the chief end of man. We've been walking through our kids with, uh, through some of the catechisms, and that's the one they've been studying this week. It's always really, really encouraging to hear them recite that. As I ask the girls, hey, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. However, John Piper would put it this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And I love that definition as well. I have to thank my lovely wife for taking time to walk through those discussions with our children in my absence. So we must understand our purpose, our calling is to bring glory to God. And as the people of God, we are to reserve our worship exclusively for him. He is to be the object of our highest praise and our greatest affection. But therein lies the issue, doesn't it? Here's where we so often stumble. You see, as fractured humanity infected by sin, our, our hearts are prone to wander, aren't they? Because our flesh is corrupt, we consistently give ourselves to these lesser loves. We fail to reserve our greatest and highest praise for our king, for the creator. And as Paul writes in Romans 1.25, he says, we fall in love with this creation above the creator. You see, when that happens, we are out of balance. We are out of step with God's design and his desire for his people. When we elevate, elevate the gifts above the giver, that's not what we're called to do. And this is a sin that we call idolatry, and it's as old as time itself. And we all give into it, whether we'll admit it or not. We all fall at the feet of our own man-made and created idols. We all sin and fall short in this way. John Calvin was accurate. He was right when he noted, quote, the human heart is an idol factory, end quote. I think he was right in his assessment. At least I know that to be true for myself. Something that I have to consistently and diligently battle by the grace of God. Friends, the reality is we are constantly tempted to bow and give our worship and devotion to everything other than God. And how could we not? How could we not fall victim to this, especially when you consider our world and our society right now in 2021? See, the world is constantly taking these temporary things and shoving them in our face and promoting them as if they have eternal value. 
And there's always something begging and fighting for our attention. There's always something to be concerned about. It's always on to the next thing, right? You got to go over here. You got to look at this. You got to be concerned with that. Constantly drawing us and wooing us away from God, right? Because of this, our intimacy with God, our worship of, of God is often compromised, And we rarely find moments to really, truly engage with God alone, right? So my question is this to you. When was the last time you worshiped God fully? Like, and when I say fully, I mean truly, completely uninterrupted, only occupied by him. I mean, even think about your quiet time. Even think about the times you sit down and you read through the word of God and you spend time in prayer, that's a time you've set aside, uh, devoted to meeting with him. Are you truly engaged? Are you fully engaged in that time? I know for me, I'm often distracted, right? Whether it's my phone, I get a text or a notification, and it just takes me away from, from my intention and what I'm doing there. Or maybe it's a thought in my mind, I'm thinking about, okay, well, I need to get this, this, and this done today. And so now I'm rushing through my time of reading and my time of prayer because I need to get to this next thing. Or maybe it's your surroundings, what's happening around you. I mean, it could be any number of things, but we're constantly distracted and taken away from our focus. We, we all do this, right? I, I know I'm not the only one. Don't leave me up here by myself now. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, I know I'm not the only one. <laughs> So Jesus tells us, I think it's helpful here to look to the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, here in Luke 10, 27. What does Jesus give as the first and greatest command? He says to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? Now, of course, on this side of perfection as still unredeemed humanity and unredeemed body, so to speak, we are, we're sinners. And we're never going to do this to perfection. We are never going to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength perfectly on this side of eternity, which is why we so desperately need a Savior that redeems and delivers, right? We're not going to get this right, but by the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, we can walk in His Spirit and we can please Him. We can be obedient with our worship, right? So when we are instructed to love God with all heart, mind, soul, and strength. What this means is that every part of our being should be active in worshiping and loving God. And the scriptures consistently command us as those under his lordship to sing the Lord's praises. Again, that's why he's created us and given us life, to proclaim his glory to the ends of the earth throughout all of creation. I mean, it's clear. We are to worship, honor, and glorify God by giving him the praise that he alone is due. Amen? Amen. So, our text for this morning is going to be Psalm 100, and it really serves a two-fold purpose here. Excuse me. I'm losing my voice. I hope whatever Tyler had didn't jump on me as we had dinner last night, but I feel fine otherwise. No need to be worried. <clears throat> so again, this text really serves a two-fold purpose here. It supplies us 
Number one, with a clear call to worship God in verses one, two, and four. And number two, it gives us the reasons to worship God in verses three and five. And ultimately, my aim is this this morning. This is what we're working towards. Listen, if you're in here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, my hope is that this text would remind you of the glorious being that you're allowed to call Father, right? That you would be led to a place of genuine worship from being able to see our glorious God. And also, if you're in here this morning, and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're not a believer, my hope is that by seeing a picture of who God is and the glory and majesty of Christ, you too would be moved to a place of surrender and devotion. So that's my aim. I'm putting all my cards on the table, pushing all the chips to the middle of the table. This is what we're working on this morning. That's what we're pushing towards. So let's read the text, only five verses. Psalm 100, I'm reading from the ESV. And it reads, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are just thankful for the truth of this text. Now we're thankful for what this means. We're thankful to be in relationship with you, to be able to offer up our praise and worship to you. God, as we have this time together, I pray that you would teach us. God, that it would be you that leads our time here together this morning. God, as I speak, I pray that you would speak through me to exhort and to challenge and encourage your people. Father, help that to be the motivation of this time, to uplift and glorify your name, also for the good and the benefit of your people. So, Father, again, I ask that you intervene here, because apart from you working and doing what only you can do, my speaking is in vain, it's, it's meaningless, it's empty. So, Father, I pray that you would do the work of opening our hearts to receive the truth of these texts, not just our ears, but our hearts as well, God, and that we would respond accordingly. Father, glorify yourself through me today. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said amen and amen. Just pretend I didn't drop that bottle. Amen. No matter what happens, just keep moving. <clears throat> All right, so we are in Psalm 100, and this psalm begins with a wonderful directive. Verse 1 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Now, if we consider the narrative of the scriptures and how faithful and committed God had been to his people, to the nation of Israel, we can certainly understand why they would shout triumphantly to their glorious God. But here the psalmist calls for the whole earth to sing God's praises. And this is a recurring theme throughout the Old 
Testament, throughout God's word. It constantly tells us to continuously declare his might and his splendor and his faithfulness to the ends of the earth. Now, God's great purpose for the whole earth, for all of creation, is to demonstrate his own glory. That's the reason for creation. That's the reason for humanity to sing God's praises. Again, that's why we've been created. That's why he's saved us and set us apart for his own glory, for his namesake. Not for ours, but for his glory. Now, think about this. God, who is sovereign over all things, again, who rules and reigns without assistance, without interference. This God that is totally self-sustaining, totally pleased in just being God. This is the God that spoke all of creation into existence by the power of his word for his divine purposes. And through creation, God has revealed himself to the world. And this beautiful landscape that we call nature is just a glimpse, just a shadow of God's infinite glory. But again, God's desire is that his glory would be on display throughout the world. And scripture tells us that what we know about God is actually really plain to us, right? His divine nature and his eternal power. Again, that's uh, Paul writing in Romans 1, that we know who God is. Every morning when you wake up and you open your eyes and you look around you and you see uh, this beautiful thing that we call nature, this beautiful creation, man, that's evidence of God's existence. It's evidence of his power and his divine nature. However, Paul also tells us that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Like we know who God is, we just don't want to know who God is. We don't want to know who God is, because if God is real, if I acknowledge the existence of God, now I have to acknowledge what this says. I don't want to wrestle with those implications. I'm not ready for that yet, because I know what that says about my life, and I don't want to deal with that. So I'm just going to put God over here and just turn my back and pretend that he doesn't exist. Right? That's how men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And because this is a reality, because men suppress the truth about God and rob him of the glory that he is due, God has tasked us as his people to proclaim his glory, right? To bring the truth of who God is to all of mankind. As his church, as his people, we've been commissioned to take the good news of Jesus Christ and the glorious reality of who God is to all the nations throughout all of creation we are to proclaim his glory listen friends we are called to be ambassadors for christ jesus right we're called to be a light unto a lost and dying world we are to live for his glory we're not to take this message of hope and deliverance and this reality of this glorious god that saves and just sit on our hands we're not just supposed to bury that somewhere We're supposed to proclaim this glorious God continuously in all that we say and all that we do. First Chronicles 16, 23 and 24 says this. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord, proclaim his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples. Friends, this is our service to our great and glorious king that we would make him known amongst all people, all nations. And as we do this, it's important to understand we're not called to do this begrudgingly. 
right? We're not called to do this out of a sense of obligation. We're called to serve and worship with hearts that are ablaze for the Lord Jesus. Right? Let's look at verse 2 here and see what it says. It says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. I think some of us stepped in here this morning and left our gladness at home. Serve the Lord with gladness. You see, in verse 1, we are directed to worship the Lord, right? We're given this wonderful directive. And here in verse 2, the psalmist informs our attitude in worship. And again, this is essential for our mission of glorifying God. And here's why. Our attitude about God shapes our worship of God. You see, the way that you perceive God and what you believe about him will ultimately determine your posture and your praise. Right? If you don't believe him to be this holy, righteous, loving, merciful God that forgives and redeems, a God that's totally worthy, you will not, in fact, you cannot bow to him. If you don't believe him to be that, you cannot worship him fully. And I believe this is a struggle of so many Christians today. Maybe I should use Christians here, right? Because they don't understand who God is. They see this picture of Christ, right, when they read the New Testament Gospels and they are taken by Jesus' compassion, his mercy, his love, his grace, his forgiveness, all of these things. But when they look at the God of the Old Testament, they see uh, wrath, they see anger, they see judgment. And they separate the two, not realizing that they're both one and the same. There's no conflict between God. There's no conflict amongst the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they all work perfectly unified together. Guess what? The Father and the Son, they're the same. So that picture that you get of Jesus Christ is really a picture of who God is. Right? Jesus says that in John chapter 10. He says, I and the Father are one. And in John 14, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What you love about Jesus in the New Testament, that's the same God of the Old Testament. God is immutable. That's just a really fancy word, way of saying he doesn't change. He's the same all the time. Jesus didn't step on the scene and reveal to us a new God. It's the same God. It's the same God. Again, there's perfect unity between the Father and the Son. No contradiction there. But if you believe God is unloving and unpleasant, if you believe that he is a God that has distanced himself from us, and you think he's just simply sitting up there waiting for you to fail so he can destroy you, I mean, how could you joyfully submit to that God? How could you follow and surrender to a God like that? And praise God for the reality of his word and what it reveals to us about God. Yes, we can't dismiss God's judgment and his wrath. He is righteous. He is just. He is holy. We can't just take the attributes of God that we like as if we're at some buffet, right? Where we can, yep, let me get, oh, forgiveness? Yeah, I'll take a bunch of that. Yep. Oh, mercy, grace, sweet. Let me get that too. Oh, wrath, judgment, Ooh, not today on a diet. Don't think I want that. That's not how God works. That's not how God works. Right? The scriptures tell us that God is near 
to those who call on him. He's not this unloving, unpleasant, just, wrathful God. Yes, wrath is one of his attributes, as he should aim his wrath justly at sin and disobedience. Right? But the scriptures tell us that God is also near to those who call on him. He's a loving God. He reaches down to save the lost and to redeem and restore and deliver and forgive time and time again. Listen, when you read this, this book right here from start to finish, that's what it teaches us. This story is God's story of redemption and how we as sinful creation, sinful humanity, screw it up time and time and time again. And God steps in and intervenes and he fixes what we fractured every single time. That's the purpose of this book. And that reality should stir our affections and move our hearts towards God to a place of genuine worship. So I want to ask you, is that the posture of your heart this morning? Is that your attitude towards God? Are you serving him with gladness and joy? Or is it just another thing on your list of things to do? Is it empty? Is it vain? Is it meaningless? What is your heart posture? Let me ask you, let me ask it this way. When it comes to your relationship with the Lord, is it duty or delight? Is it reverence or requirement? Where are you at? Where are we at? Where are our hearts this morning? Are we worshiping God because we truly treasure and enjoy him? Have you seen God's grace and majesty and his love revealed to you in the cross? at the cross, through Jesus. And as that grace led you to a place of joyful devotion, or again, does your worship just feel like a, a sense of commitment? Just another thing to do. So you can't be fully engaged in worshiping God. You're only doing it out of a sense of obligation. You have to treasure him. You must delight in the Lord. Listen, Christ Jesus, this wonderful Savior and Messiah, is to be treasured and praised in our worship. Not only that, but he's not to be used, right? There are, I think there are so many Christians who look at Jesus as fire insurance, right? As a way out, as an escape, right? They turn to Jesus simply because they want to avoid hell, Right? Like, hell, yeah, nobody wants that. Nobody wants to go there. Oh, Jesus is a way out? Cool, yeah, let me get that. I'm in, right? They don't have any real affections or desire for him. They just want to escape an eternity of suffering. They turn to Jesus and his gospel as if, as if the gospel is a product. Listen, the gospel isn't a product, it's a person. And it's the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. And I am so burdened for those who look at Jesus as simply a way out. Burdened for those who look at the gospel as fire insurance, as those who only turn to Jesus out of a sense of obligation or means to an end. Listen, that's not legitimately following Christ. If you only turn to him because you're looking to escape, if he's your means to an end, if you're not truly trusting in him for his atoning work, 
for the freedom that we have, for the grace that we have, for the salvation that's been uh, given to us. It's not genuinely following Christ. And in fact, if you're only turning to him out of a sense of obligation, you will not follow him with much joy or delight. In fact, you're not going to be able to do it very well. You're not going to be able to follow Jesus very well or very long if this is why you turn to him. And here's the reason why. Because following Jesus is hard. It's difficult. Right? It is very, very difficult. When Jesus calls a man, listen, Jesus, when he, he picked up his cross, he carried it to the top of a hill and he died. And when he calls a man, or woman, he calls you to do the same thing, to pick up your cross and to die to self each day. People, it's not a cakewalk. It's difficult. Following Jesus is hard. If you don't see him for who he is, if you don't see him as this glorious Savior and Messiah, as this all-satisfying, forever-sufficient fountain of living water, you will not follow him. At least you won't do it well and you won't do it for very long. You have to see him for who he is. You have to see him for who he is and find joy and treasuring in Christ Jesus. This text tells us to serve the Lord with gladness and joy. Again, my brothers, my sisters, friends, this is an invitation to delight in the Lord, to enjoy him, to, as Psalms 34, 8 tells us, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Listen, the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, he shares this kingdom parable, right, with his disciples. And this is what it says, Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and he buys that field. Now, a lot of times as we read that parable, as we read that text, we emphasize this idea of giving up certain things in order to follow Jesus. And yes, that is true. That is gloriously true. God is calling us to lay aside and surrender certain things. We must be willing to sacrifice it all for Jesus. We talked about that a little bit. I talked about that last week as we uh, went through our uh, Philippians and we looked at the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Yes, we must be willing to give up and surrender and sacrifice in order for Jesus Christ. But one thing I think we often miss or overlook when we read this parable is this one small word with massive implications, and that's the word joy. Let's read it again. It says that the man found, or excuse me, that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, he sells everything he has and buys that field. You see, the man gave up all he had with great joy. His heart was exceedingly glad to surrender and sacrifice everything for Christ Jesus. He wasn't angry about it. He didn't do it begrudgingly or out of a sense of obligation. He wasn't like the rich young ruler when Jesus called him to surrender his possessions who went away sorrowful. This man did it with great joy. He was glad because he knew what he got in return. Look what I found. I'm more than willing to surrender it all because what I found is so infinitely glorious and just better. It's just better. Jesus is better. Whew, I hope that doesn't miss you today. 
Are you serving the Lord? Man, this bottle's going to kill me. <clears throat> All right, we might have to get something fixed right here. We might have to do something. Anyway, let me ask you, are you serving the Lord with this kind of joy? Are you offering up your praise from a heart that is truly content in Christ alone? Or are you considering the things of the world? Do you consider them of the ultimate or utmost value? Are there other things that uh, reserve your highest and greatest affection? Are you joyful in your servants and obedience, your service and obedience to Christ Jesus? Are you doing it with gladness? Are you worshiping him this way? Maybe you're not. Maybe again, it's a very stagnant, robotic, just duty that you're performing. There's no joy when you follow Christ Jesus. Or maybe you're in here this morning and you just don't know who this glorious and loving and forgiving and merciful, just, holy, righteous God is that I'm preaching about. Maybe you have no idea who this is. Maybe you've never come face to face with the reality of this God. The truth is, apart from his spirit being at work, you'll never be able to acknowledge him as God. You'll never be able to surrender your life to him. You'll never be able to follow him with great joy and gladness. Apart from the spirit doing what only he can do, changing our hearts, opening our eyes to the reality and the majesty of Christ Jesus. Apart from that happening, it's just, it's just work. It's just a chore. Right? But here's the reality for us, for those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ. All that we have and all that we are in Christ is immeasurable. It's, it's so incredible who Christ is and what he's done on our behalf. Jesus is supremely valuable. He's infinitely greater than any earthly treasure. He's greater than anything the world could offer you. Now, I once heard, I believe it was Pastor John Piper as well, said that, look, if you can offer me anything greater than Jesus, I'll stop being a Christian today. I'll walk away from the faith right now. If you can offer me anything that is eternally greater, more magnificent, more brilliant, more freeing, more eternal, more glorious than Christ Jesus, I'll shut this book and I'll walk away right now. I'll wait. There isn't anything. Jesus is better. Paul put it this way. The Apostle Paul says, I also consider everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as nothing so that I may gain Christ. That's Philippians 3.8. 3, in a couple of weeks, we're, we're going to go through that passage. And I'm really excited about that. I hope you are as well. Man, when we read that, Paul, Paul, that is radical talk. But the reality is this. You can only speak this way, the way that Paul does here, when you see Jesus in all of his splendor can't say this with confidence unless you know him personally as your savior. You only move to a place of delighting in God when you encounter Christ Jesus in all of his saving 
grace. You see, genuine worship of God is birthed from a place of joy in him. And again, that is our purpose, to reserve our praise, devotion, joy, gladness, worship for this glorious God. Let's look at verse 4. And it reads, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Now, while full and legitimate worship of God includes enjoying him, in verse 4, the psalmist tells us that genuine worship also demands our gratitude. We are to offer God the thanks that he is due for all of his wondrous works, all of his wonderful works. It's his desire that we come before him with grateful hearts, compelled to love and praise him because of him. Right? We're supposed to approach him with gratitude. And God's word tells us that time and time again. Just a couple of verses here. Ephesians 5.20 says, Give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And that's just three texts. There's a pile of texts right here that tell us to offer God our praise and our thanks that we should move towards him with thankful hearts. See, gratitude should be a consistent and constant posture of our hearts as the people of God. And this gratitude is ultimately because of his provision that has been evidenced through Christ Jesus. That's why we give him thanks. That's why we're grateful this morning. Amen? I hope I'm not the only one. We're thankful for God's work of redemption and reconciliation. We're thankful that it is complete. We're thankful that it doesn't rest on our shoulders. We're thankful that Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection is totally sufficient. And it is by his wounds that we are healed. Man, thank God for that reality this morning. Thank God for that reality. So we have to understand that true worship is always accompanied by gratitude. And again, how could we approach him in any other way? How could we approach him with anything other than gratitude for his unending love and his grace and his mercy is so abundant, it's so evident. So you have to remember that we were born as enemies of God. We're born in opposition to him because of our sin and rebellion. That's why we read that beautiful prayer as a reminder of who we are. And as uh, Mr. Glenn pointed out, what we actually deserve, right? Apart from God's grace. You see, we had accrued 100% of the guilt and the debt. However, Christ Jesus did 100% of the work. He did all of the work. He left nothing undone. There's nothing left for you to do to contribute to your salvation. He has reconciled you to God through his blood at the cross. God did the work. Let's look again at verse 4. I want you to notice the wording here. You see, the psalmist says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. This too is a reason to sing the Lord's praise and offer him thanksgiving and gratitude. 
You see, that this glorious God would invite lowly, sinful, broken, rebellious people into his presence to commune and fellowship with him within his kingdom for eternity. What a glorious reality that is, that he would allow us to be in relationship with him. That's truly astonishing. Again, especially when you remember that we deserve nothing but wrath and hell. And this isn't a privilege that we've earned. It's not something we deserve. It's not something God was forced to do. He didn't have to do this. This is an act of his love and his amazing grace. It's all a gift that's been afforded to us. Beneficiaries of God's grace and love. See, there's a glorious redemption. There's a glorious relationship, I should say of freedom and redemption for those that are in Christ Jesus, and it's freely offered to all. The Lord says, whosoever will, let him come. Whosoever will, let him come. My friends, brothers and sisters, I ask you this morning, bless his holy name by telling the world about this great and glorious God. And in every circumstance, offer him thanksgiving. Worship him with every part of your life with all that you have and all that you are. He is totally, totally worthy. Worthy of praise and devotion. You have to understand that gratitude should be consistent in our worship, constantly giving thanks to God, to Christ our King. So as we move to verses 3 and 5, we'll look at those briefly and we'll prepare to wrap up our time here this morning. So these two verses really give us reasons to worship. I've given you a bunch, but I want to look at the specific reasons that are written here in verses 3 and 5. You see, as God's people, we are, of course, called to worship him fully, to proclaim his glory to all people, to serve him with joy and gladness, to come before him with hearts of thanksgiving. So then the question becomes this. What is this text giving us as reasons for worship? What compels us to worship God in this way? Let's look at verse 3. It says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So here I believe the psalmist gives us three truths that I want us to look at briefly. First of all, that the Lord is God right? The Lord is God. The Israelites had experienced this reality firsthand. They knew that their God was a God like no other, that the God of Israel was one that was faithful, that was all-powerful, right? But even in understanding who God was, they stumbled into the sin of idolatry as well. It's like they had a very short memory. The minute they crossed over the Red Sea, They fell right into idolatry. They sang a song, they worshiped God. Next thing you know, it's, hey man, I need something else. I need something else. But we must remember the focus, the point of this is to remember that the Lord is God, Yahweh, the God that we get to be in relationship with, that we get to call our Father. He is God. He is God. See, the Israelites, again, they knew of his righteousness. They knew of his perfection. They knew of his deliverance and love. They knew that he was a God who was holy, who was high and lifted up and set apart beyond our comprehension. 
So I ask you, do you, do you know that to be true of God this morning? Do you know that God is a throne, enthroned and sits above the earth and great and glorious, this thrice holy God, as the book of Isaiah tells us? Do you know that to be the reality of God? Do you know him in this way? Or is God just simply an idea to you? Is God just an idea? Is it just something to kind of think about, kick around in your mind? God's just a really cool idea. It's a great concept. And I want you to know that God is infinitely more than just a set of ideas or principles. Again, he's Yahweh, the creator of everything and every one. He is our glorious God. And again, because he's God, he deserves our praise. And he doesn't need it. He doesn't need us. Again, he's totally satisfied in himself. He's God. He's perfection. He always has been and always will be. He doesn't need us. He's totally satisfied, exalted above any other. And this is what makes him so deserving of our reverence and our esteem for no other reason than simply he is God and we are not. He is God and we are not. Now, secondly, the psalmist tells us or reminds us here that God is our creator. God is the giver and sustainer of life. It is by his hand that what exists, exists. Again, we just touched on that. He created everything. He's created it all. He has made it all. Listen, I don't know anything about the Big Bang Theory, but what I do know is in the beginning, God created. That's what I hold to. That's what I know, that God is the creator. And because he's given me life, because he's created me and you and everything we see, man, we must devote ourselves to our king, to our creator. He has the right to dictate how we live and what we do. But again, if you don't believe that, if we read Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, if you don't believe that, nothing you read after that's going to matter. If you don't believe that, nothing else will matter. We understand that God is the creator. Nehemiah 9, 6 says this, You, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens with all their stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and all the stars of heaven worship you. Listen, here's the reality, that God is the greatest reality in all of existence because he's the creator of all of existence. Amen? And I want you to just, just ponder on the reality of this. You see, we have this all-powerful, sovereign, and self-sustaining holy God who, again, by his power, he brought all of creation to be. And in his divine will, he saw fit to create mankind, to breathe breath into our lungs, to give us life. He made us in his glorious image. He looked upon his creation and he says, it is good. See, God is our maker. He is the potter and we are the clay. We are the workmanship of this great creator. See, that gives you purpose. And that's kind of what we've been discussing here this morning, our purpose. If you believe that you're here by accident, again, if you subscribe to the Big Bang Theory and you think you're only here by accident and that everything you see around you came to be and happens by chance, you don't have a purpose because you shouldn't be here anyway. Right? God gives us purpose. Knowing that he is the creator, as his creation, we belong to him. 
finally, number three, what the psalmist points us to, what verse three tells us here is that we are his. And this should bring you great comfort and joy this morning to know that you belong to this God of the universe, the almighty sovereign ruler and creator of all things. This reality should provide you with an unshakable peace, knowing that this is the God that keeps and sustains you. It's not by your own endurance. It's not by your performance or your perseverance or pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and being able to work real hard and do real well. No, it is God that keeps you. The text tells us we're his. We're his. What a glorious reality that is to know that this God is the one that holds us fast. In fact, the text tells us not just that we're his, but we're his people and the sheep of his pasture. So what that means is if we are his sheep, then he is our what? Let's go. You guys know some stuff. We are his Shepherd, one of the most famous psalms, one of the most well-known psalms, Psalm 23, King David writes, the Lord is my shepherd. And I wish I had time to dig into all of that this morning, but we don't. And then if you look at John 10, Jesus even refers to himself as the good shepherd. And I want you to consider the magnitude of this comparison briefly. Listen, that our mighty righteous, glorious God would compare himself to something so simple, so lowly, so humble, it's just remarkable. You have to remember what a shepherd's job was. Back in that day and this time, and that was a very lowly profession. It was dirty. It was often given to the youngest brother within the family, right? And what a shepherd would do is a shepherd would reside and dwell among his sheep, intentionally caring for them, counting, uh, keeping count of each sheep each day, constantly watching over them, right? This is what a shepherd would do. It was, it was kind of dirty work. But this illustration, this comparison of God to a shepherd truly illuminates the reality that though God is ultimate, he's also very intimate, right? He's ultimate and he's intimate. He is this great and glorious God who, yes, sits enthroned above the earth and he rules and he reigns supreme, yet he is very near to us. He has made his home amongst his people. Again, think of the analogy, the illustration here, that if we're the sheep and he's the shepherd, guess what? He dwells amongst us daily. And as Psalm 23 reminds us, he guides us to safety and security and rest. And what better place, what safer place to be than at the side of your shepherd? Amen? Amen. Man, listen, here's the reality. If you are a Christian here this morning, if you have been regenerated and purchased by the blood of Christ, well, then through the provision of Christ Jesus, God has stooped down to care for you in this very same way as a shepherd cares for his sheep. And by the blood of Christ, we are redeemed. And that is good news this morning. This means we have a God that is committed to us, that cares for us deeply and genuinely. We don't need to worry. We don't need to fear. We are eternally secure, again, at the side of our shepherd. And what makes this really so astonishing is that God is fully aware of our tendency to wander and to stray. Scripture tells us that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. That's Isaiah 53, 6. 
But the Lord in his grace and his mercy and his everlasting love, he draws us back to himself. He leads us back to him. When we couldn't save ourselves, when we were just foolish, lost sheep, incapable of finding our way home, God, praise God that he draws us back to himself. He doesn't leave us to roam. He doesn't leave us to wander. Take comfort in knowing that this is the God that is keeping you, the God that is holding you fast. Brothers and sisters, your place is among his flock. What a glorious reality it is to be sheep of the good shepherd, the one who laid down his life for his own, right? Jesus tells us in John 10 that this is what the good shepherd does. Through him we are restored. We are given abundant life. It is in him, Christ Jesus, that we have all that we need. This is why we lift our praises to our great and glorious God today because he saves and redeems and delivers and restores again and again and again. As we prepare to end our time, I want to look briefly at verse 5 here in Psalm 100. As this psalm comes to a close, the psalmist highlights two of God's most incredible attributes, his love and his faithfulness. Let's look at verse 5, and it reads, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Why do we worship the Lord? Because he's so incredibly good. He is so incredibly good. In fact, he's the source of all that is good. And apart from him, there is no good. If you don't believe that, just turn on the news. Look at what's happening around us. Even Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one that is good, right? Of course, Jesus is God, so we understand where he's going with that. But God is the only source of any real and true and lasting good. He's so incredibly good. That is why we offer our worship and our praise. And we see God's goodness on display again through the narrative of his story, through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. We see that God is good. As sinful and broken human beings, we fail and we stumble. Through sin, we fractured our relationship with God. But he is just to forgive. Not because we are somehow deserving of his mercy or forgiveness, but again, because he is this good and loving and gracious God. And his love endures forever and his faithfulness through all generations. And what that means is that God's love and his faithfulness, it's unending, unending it's unwavering, it's unconditional, it's eternal. And his love and his faithfulness climaxes in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You see it on display in its greatest fashion at the cross. You see, God had made a covenant promise to his people. He promised to be their God. And even when they turned from God, he promised them salvation, restoration, and deliverance through this coming Messiah. And that promise, again, is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. By grace alone, through faith alone, you and I are all beneficiaries of this promise in God's steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the reality that we get to live each day by God's grace. 
Again, God's greatest demonstration of his love and faithfulness is displayed to you in Christ Jesus at the cross. This is a truth that should anchor our hearts to him because he has secured our eternity in him. This is what compels us to exalt the name of our king. We give ourselves to this glorious God because he's given our, his self to us. He's given himself to us. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you today to look at Christ Jesus, to ponder on the things that we've discussed this morning. I want you to walk out of this building and totally forget who God is and the reality of Christ Jesus and the crucifixion. Remember that Christ is a picture of God's love and his faithfulness. And as this glorious God, he is totally worthy and deserving of our worship and devotion. That is my challenge and my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters. Now, listen, if you're sitting in one of these seats today and it's like, well, I'm not a believer, so he ain't talking to me. Let's hold on. Not so fast. Right. If you're sitting in these seats today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, uh, I ask you too to ponder on the realities of the cross. I ask you too to consider who is this Jesus? Who is this glorious God? Who is this creator? Who is this shepherd? Who is this king? I want you to consider the reality of who God is and consider what it looks like to lay down your life and your rebellion. Surrender yourself to the Lord Jesus. There's nothing greater you could give yourself to. You see, when we talk about the shepherd who laid down his life, right, the world's not going to do that for you. Your money, drugs, whatever it might be. You were created for a purpose. You were created to be in relationship with this great and glorious God. And even when we turned away, see, that's the beautiful message of the gospel. Even when we turned away in our sin, he intervened. God himself, he stepped in and made right what we had made wrong. He fixed what we had fractured. Listen, I stand here as a man. I understand my sin and my depravity. I understand the depths of how far I'd fallen. It's not lost on me how sinful and corrupt and depraved I have been. But man, I see God's goodness, faithfulness, and grace on display because he didn't leave me. He saved me. And that's something I couldn't have done myself. Man, I hope that if you're in here this morning and you're wandering, and maybe as you, you've never heard the gospel preached, maybe you've never gotten a clear picture of who Christ is, and I pray that God's doing something in your heart today. And if he is, please don't leave without finding me or one of our members. And we would love to talk to you. We would love to pray with you and, and, and tell you about this glorious Savior that is Jesus Christ. He's so worthy. He's so incredibly good and worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you are this good and glorious, loving Heavenly Father. That as we read this text, that as we have this time together, we are reminded of who you are. God, I pray that as your people, those bound to you by the blood of Christ, we would worship you in all things, in every area of our life with all that we have and all that we are. We would exalt the name of Jesus. Father, as your people, as the bride of Christ, help us to remember our purpose, to not be distracted by the things of this world, the empty glories of this life, 
but to be devoted to worshiping and praising your name. Father, I pray for all those in here under the sound of my voice who may not know you. God, I pray that you use this time, you use our faithful proclamation to draw others to yourself. Those who may be lost, those who may be wandering, those carrying heavy burdens. God, I pray that they would find freedom and rest in you today. Again, Father, I ask that by the power of your spirit, by your grace, that you would help us to honor you in all things. Help us to sing your praises consistently to the ends of the earth throughout all of creation. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.